Dotnet Rocks episode 905 with guest Eric Boyd. Recorded live Wednesday, August 14th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Windows Azure, who wants you as an MSDN subscriber to activate your free Windows Azure credits and start building your own dev test environment in the cloud. Activate before September 30th for a chance to win a 2013 Aston Martin V8 Vantage sports car. Go to dotnetrocks.com slash Azure to enter and win. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. Carl and Richard here. We uh, have just recorded our 900th show at that conference in Wisconsin, Dells, Wisconsin, last night. Yes, although this is now show 905, but that's because stuff's not always done in order. That's just how it is. That's right. We're used to time shifting. Uh, what's up? Besides, you know, a great, great time here in Wisconsin. Oh, we had a riot. I, you were off playing last night, which is what you usually do at night. Yeah, Alan Stevens and I managed to uh, finagle a guitar from a friend, and we sat out on the porch and disturbed everybody all night. And I played Cards Against Humanity with a group of guys, which if you I can't explain it. This is not really a family show, but you have to go look up Cards Against Humanity. And it's not a family game. No, not really. Although my daughters have played it, and they still chant certain cards back. Every well, your daughters are older. Yeah, they're not little kids. Anyway. All right. Better know framework time. All right, dude. What do you got? Okay, here's what I got. Uh, you know, it's very hard to find a Chaos Monkey-related uh, .NET class, so I'm not going to try to find one. <laughs> but uh, I did find a very cool... I don't know. For some reason, game engines and game programming came to mind today. So I went and I found a game engine uh, called Axiom 3D, axiom3d.net. As far as I can tell, it's free. Uh, it's for .NET 2 or 4. It's a 3D game engine built on the Ogre engine, which I guess is uh, um, chosen for its clean, object-oriented design and everything. And you have all of the stuff that... 3D game engines have. They also have a link to MonoDevelop, so I wonder if uh, MonoGame is involved in Axiom3D.net. But be that as it may, check it out. It's pr- very cool. And, you know, if you have kids and they want to get into programming, game programming is a great way to uh, to get them interested in it. So there you go. Axiom3D.net. Know it, learn it, love it. Hey, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 896, and that's the one we did about automated deployment with Joe and Alex. Right. And this comment comes from uh, Jesse Tabor. And, we, and I think somewhere in there, we, that's a very DevOpy show. And we talked about a lot of different things, including the whole Flickr shipping 10 deploys a day. Right. And, uh, and Jesse Tabor says here, uh, I think the points related to deploying 10 times a day were very well made. I agree that on the surface, deploying that often to a production environment isn't inherently good or bad. It just depends on what your business needs are. I view the goal of adopting continuous deployment procedures and tools as enabling your team to deploy new code to any environment at any time. If you can achieve that level of flexibility, you can put the decisions regarding when and where to deploy in the hands of the proper stakeholders. It's all about developing a common understanding of the process to be shared amongst the functional teams in your organization, development, operations, QA, customer sort, product management, and so on. 
and empowering the proper people to make decisions when new functionality is made available in particular environments. And I love how well this ties into the show we just did using Azure Blob Storage to provide versions of the Clicks Once app to your client. Right. Which I thought was really cool. You know, instead of emailing that stuff around or VPN or anything like that, it's just here it is and you can look at it anytime. Really simple. So, and you're not really doing quotes, you know, continuous deployment to production. That's not the point. It's that the automation is allowing you to easily get new versions of the app. You know what the right version is in the right place. Uh, and just to finish Jesse's comment here, uh, for some organizations, letting developers push new code directly into production 10 times a day might be the right decision for that business. In other organizations, letting the product management team push code once a month might be preferred. If your tooling and procedures can support both of those scenarios, then you're, quote, doing it right. Awesome. So, Jesse, love the comment. Totally agree. I really like the, the story arc that we're telling in .NET Rocks these days about applying these elements of the DevOps movement to make the whole development and, and operational procedures better. Uh, I'd love to send you a .NET Rocks mug, so I'll get your address and we'll get it out to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Android. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises, who'd love to build you an app. At diatomenterprises.com. And, uh, hey, before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release about 40 new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including complete coverage of ASP.NET. Try Plural site today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And, uh, buddy, before we introduce Eric, uh, we should talk a little bit about Dev Intersection that we're uh, coming up on here in the fall. Absolutely. Last week of October, so October 27th to 30th, MGM Grand, which is one of the best places you can do a show. And um, somebody that I know is doing the content planning. Who? Uh, that'd be you. <laughs> I'm, I'm work, you know, we, I'm working with a bunch of different folks. Uh, I, I focus on the Visual Studio and the ASP.NET stuff, which is, you know, a lot of the same sorts of things that we're doing inside of .NET Rocks. Uh, John Papa and Dan Welleen worked on the Angle Brackets content. So alongside the- And Angle Brackets is another conference alongside it for web. Well, and you know what the fun part about that is Angle Brackets approaches the open web concepts and, and designs, which attracts a certain audience. And Dev Intersection also attracts its own audience. And I just like to see those audiences mix. Yeah, that's very cool. On top of that, there's SQL Intersection as well. So Paul Randall and Kim Tripp are running the SQL Intersection side of things. They've got an unbelievable lineup of speakers, some of the best SQL people you'll see anywhere. And they're all co-located. You can go to any session in any of those spaces. So, and uh, our little gift to you, if you want to sign up at devintersection.com, there's a little drop-down box where it says, where you heard about us? And if you select .NET Rocks, you get 50 bucks off. Shh, don't tell anyone. All right. And with that, let us introduce Eric D. Boyd. Eric is founder and CEO of ResponsiveX, a Windows Azure MVP and a regular speaker at national conferences, regional code camps, and local user groups. He is so passionate about apps and cloud services that he founded ResponsiveX, a management and technology consultancy that helps customers create great web, mobile, and client experiences, often enabled by cloud services. Eric launched his technology career almost two decades ago with a web development startup and has served in multiple roles since then, including developer, consultant, technology executive, and business owner. You can find Eric blogging at www.ericdboyd.com, B-O-Y-D, and on Twitter at Eric D. Boyd. 
Welcome, Eric. Hi, guys. Well, Chaos Monkey. Yeah. Uh, we've we've told the, the story of the Netflix Chaos Monkey, but uh, it's such a good story, and uh, it gets you thinking about how how you can challenge your team and how you can challenge uh, uh, just about everybody to, to exercise the failure mode. Yeah, so I think I think uh, kind of at the core, before we dri- dive too deep into the chaos piece of it, the cloud changes things a lot for people when they architect apps. So, sure. you know, oftentimes on premise when we're building software and we're building apps, you know, we think about buying big servers mm-hmm. and we buy, you know, large, large servers to meet our needs in one box that the box is fault tolerant and highly available. Multiple power supplies, drives are all redundant, redundant NICs. Like- exactly. So the box never goes down, right? Or never rarely is a funny goes word, down. Yeah. You know, it's true that servers are really reliable these days. Right. And so ideally your, uh, your ops folks are aware when a power supply dies mm-hmm. and hot swaps it and stuff like that. But the box itself is generally reliable. Uh, you go to cloud and you go to something completely different. That reliability kind of moves up the stack. That redundancy moves up the stack. Mm-hmm. And so it's at the data center or the cloud provider level. So you start thinking about the data center as an OS. Right. Uh, and, and, and so you have to think about scale differently and, and you have to think about fault tolerance and high availability differently because you have commodity hardware running. And right. so it's a different situation. Much more the pizza box model, the really small machines with no redundancy within the machine. And but you're redundant across those machines. That's exactly it. Yeah. So so you scale out instead of buying massive massive machines right. in the cloud. So that is a different model than we're used to on premise. Because ultimately that scales better than the big big iron approach. It's like, a lot cheaper. Like the you know you know the exponential cost. Do you think it's really cost. pricey? Do you think it's reliability? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. So you know you know the the exponential cost curve as we buy bigger and bigger boxes, mm-hmm. not linear. And then when we want to scale that to buy a bigger box, we throw the last one out. Or the repurpose. impact when you lose a big box on your system, it's just harder to tolerate that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so so scaling out is both, you know, uh, there's a linear cost component to mm-hmm. it that I can just incrementally add to that instead of having big boxes sitting around or buying bigger and bigger boxes. And then um, there's the maintenance costs that go up with every big box. Right, exactly. And, and as well, it's just a lot easier to do that and not just from a cost perspective, but, um, to just scale your system during peak times, peak load times. I find that, uh, in talking to people that the, the cloud is such a no brainer, save for one issue. And that is, you know, security and control and, uh, or, or laws, you know, laws that prevent our data from being outside of our control. Yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, do you, you just can't argue with the economics of it. Right. Yeah. There's just, you know, other than, you know, the, the fear of having to rethink how we build software sometimes. Right. Uh, so there is some of that. But, you know, the goo, he's on it. <laughs> he is. <laughs> he's, he's doing, doing a great, great job. job. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank you, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I did a... Uh, yeah, I got that. Yeah. It's kind of like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mary Jo We Foley. all did the happy dance. Things are about to get good. Right. <laughs> Mary Jo Foley uh, did an article about six months in uh, with with Scott, and, and uh, she uh, she interviewed me for that article. Uh, we bumped into each other at a conference, and and she was like, "What you know? What is Scott doing in Azure?" And it's like, "Oh man, look at all the great things he's done in Azure. He's made it made it easy for us as developers to use uh, Visual Studio now with Azure." So yeah, Scott's done a great job. 
Um, so yeah, thank you, Scott. <laughs> um, but, go, but going back to, you know, that, that scale and how we, how it impacts how we architect software, like that's really the only significant pain point, I would say, outside of the, the laws and, and uh, security and, and privacy issues that people are concerned about. There is pain, uh, in re-architecting your apps to work well in that scale out model. Um, right. But it's 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 those kinds of things that we probably should have always been doing. We just had a way to get around it. And now, so let's let's outline some of those things. What's going to bite you? Yeah. So statelessness, right? We sometimes depend on state. Uh, so right now in Azure, um, there's no there's no concept of a sticky session. Uh, so yeah, you you, you know it's, you don't have a choice. You can't screw that up. Right. When you build it yourself, you can. But exactly. The cloud basically insists on no, nah, you can't put state here. Right. So no session variables is what you're saying? No, no, you still have session. You just can't, you just can't be kind of sticky to a box, to a node in your, oh, in your I farm. See. Um, see. so you have to put that session, you have to persist that somewhere else off the node. So do you, if you have just an ASP.NET, uh, app and do you want to put it up on Azure? Do you, is that something that you, Seriously have to worry about how you're, you're handling your session data? So de- it depends on how you, where you go. So if you go to like Windows Azure websites, for example, Windows Azure websites makes it very familiar to how you would deploy on premise and how you would build apps on premise. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty simple. When you make the jump to cloud services, then you have to start thinking about things maybe a little differently, especially if you were using sticky sessions. Okay. So that's where you run into those sorts of challenges. And this is all stuff, I mean, you don't have to involve the cloud to do this. I've built redundant websites and you push the state out into uh, multiply redundant state stores that are independent of the web server so that any web server can go down and the site keeps functioning. And, and more importantly, the individual connection keeps going. It just goes to a different server, recovers the state, keeps going. That's exactly it. So it's not, it's why, I, you know, I, I often see the cloud as being a driver for us to do things that we probably should have always been doing, mm-hmm. um, but now we have no other option. Like we have to do right. that. So think about things like debugging and diagnostics. Like in your data center with a couple of servers, you may have just walked up to a box and looked at the console and read out the event log and stuff like that. Right. Um, now, when you are scaling out to hundreds of nodes, perhaps yeah, finding you, that event log you is you a challenge. You don't want to go there. You, right. Those things need to be consolidated. They didn't sort it for you and, you know, the important bits pulled out. It's got to be automated. Exactly. So, I, you know, I'm curious, how, how do you handle that problem? Yeah. So in Windows Azure, there's some, there's some great tooling that Microsoft's provided. One of those things is called Windows Azure Diagnostics. And what Diagnostics does is lets you kind of build in, uh, an agent into your, your cloud service that will collect the, the logs. So whether that's event logs or performance counters or mm-hmm. files, and aggregate that all into one storage account. So you have one central place. Great. Yeah. So that's a great, great way to do that. That's cool. And what about, uh, web logs in general? You know, like I love being able to just go into that, you know, directory and find my, you know, daily logs and pull them up in a text editor and look around and where, where did all those things end up? So you can do the same thing with those using Azure Diagnostics. You can yeah. redirect those to a storage account. So the IIS logs, failed request logs, all of those sorts of things you can great. bring in. Uh, to a storage account. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Shall we talk chaos? Let's talk about chaos. So right. in this, when, when you go down this path, uh, you know, we use the typical architecture of uh, box, arrow, box, arrow, cylinder, right? So we have a, <laughs> a uh, some sort of front end. 
<laughs> Every app uh, looks like this, right? Flow charts on yeah. a radio show. What's this wrong is, with this picture? This is what this is what the architects <laughs> do, right? We go in and we say, let's build an app, and it looks like this: a box arrow, arrow. So box. there's our web server. Maybe we have a an app server with some web services. There's another box and an yeah. arrow. And at the end of the day, it's talking to some data have a storage. load balancer box there, <laughs> yeah, right? And so <laughs> and then we have a cylinder. Cylinder, exactly. <laughs> so what's a cylinder when you have nothing but SSD drives, right? What's a cylinder actually? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere to store that data, right? Box arrow, box arrow, cylinder. I love that. Yeah. Dot com. Exactly. <laughs> uh, get it quick. Um, so Sorry for derailing. No, you're fine. So then you let's think about that that second box, right? The the app server. Um, you have a web server that's functioning just fine, but something goes wrong with the app server. And maybe you just had one of those running and not two, or mm. maybe it happened to half of the app servers, um, and you just can't keep up with that load. And so that's right. what you want to know up front. And so a chaos monkey, so Netflix pioneered this, uh, on AWS. Netflix runs, uh, tons and tons of VMs on AWS. Yeah. Uh, and so what they wanted to know is if there's an issue, we want it, we want to know about it in work hours and not at 3 a.m. And right. so they run a chaos monkey in production, which basically just goes through at random and reboots instances and reimages instances. So mm. like that's crazy to think about. Uh, in a production environment, you have this little bot that's just causing chaos <laughs> in your data center. <laughs> I, it's, everything about this is awesome. It doesn't seem smart, but it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem smart, but it actually is. Yeah, and so I mean their their logic is really simple and that is I want this to run between these hours when I know I have engineers around. Monitoring. Nothing exactly. Nothing should fail, but in the event that it does, I want people to be around to go work on the problem. Right. Uh, cuz as you guys know, software changes all the time and even though we think it's fault tolerant, highly available, resilient, somebody may have introduced something that counters that. So, well, do, aren't we supposed to just test for all these scenarios? Like, why wouldn't we just be? Why are we doing this in production? Why are we testing? Well, you, you, I think you sure, certainly should do it in uh, in, your, in your test environment as right. well. Um, but you, you know, you've probably seen uh, differences in production environments as well. So, so the guy who walked on a tightrope across the Grand Canyon says he never works with a tether because that gives him a false sense of security that he oh he can go ahead and let himself fall because the tether will just pick it up pick up the slack for him and uh that has been passed on from generations of generations of tightrope walkers in his family and this is what i'm thinking you know is because we have the chaos monkey out there is that another opportunity for us to not test as thoroughly as we should because we know uh the chaos monkey will uh, reveal this problem and some engineer not me will pick it up later so there, there are different types of chaos monkeys that you're gonna you're going to run into, but um, kind of at the at the core, the chaos monkey uh, that that Netflix has really is all about re instant re uh, rebooting and and reimaging servers. Um, so any problems that could occur because of that, because of maybe downstream systems um, not being available, you would uncover. But it doesn't eliminate all testing. So it's it's not going to randomly go and change your database connection strings in your XML files, for example. Right, but you could certainly do that. Like maybe that's something you would want to introduce into your environment. Turn off of a turn off a database server, something like that. Right. Well and so and so, 
you know, if your database server was one of those things uh, sitting on a, a downstream server that you wanted to reboot, then you would get that sort of behavior. And so this forces you to think about the architecture of your app a little differently, right? So it may not be a situation where your app is functioning perfectly during this time when something's unavailable. Ideally, that's the case, that you have resiliency and right. fault tolerance and load balancing. But it may just be that you provide a degraded experience, but not a... Uh, not a yellow screen air sort of thing that you would see in ASP.NET, right? Yeah, you know, not 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 complete failure, right? I mean, the idea of you know, partial failure, being able to limp along, recover from that is it. But what I find interesting about this is the idea that when I mean, clearly we have to get into how you set Chaos Monkey up, but it's fairly easy to go through and look at all your services and say, okay, I'll give you the ability to kill any of these without actually looking at it from a systems perspective and say, you know, what's the chain for many of that? But I guess that's the point. Stuff breaks, right? You, you're really trying to get into situations where that I would never have thought of that, that that would ever happen. Because in the real world, weird things happen. Stuff you've never thought of does occur. Exactly. So um, if you were to set up a chaos monkey in Azure, let's say, for Azure websites, and let's say you're, you've got a, you know, a big scale out, is that testing your code or is that testing Azure's code or both? Yeah, and the Azure websites case, it's a little difficult. Uh, you don't have that sort of low-level control to do that very well. Right. So it's a little difficult in that case to really uh, to deal with a, a chaos monkey because um, you, you really don't have control to, to reboot downstream If you're in systems. a web role, though. Exactly. So if you have uh, a cloud service that you have you know, some web roles, some worker roles, maybe some databases, yeah. or even in, in VMs and in IaaS, mm-hmm. um, then that makes it a lot easier to just go reboot and re-image those, those systems. And so it may be as simple as, like maybe the problem is you didn't really think about capacity. So maybe you have a load test running and you want to know what happens when some servers get rebooted. Right. Um, did you buffer enough extra capacity to deal with uh, that scenario, uh, that increased load, because you've pulled servers out of the, the load balancer for that period of time? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all sorts of things that you could deduce from, from running that Chaos Monkey. And, and I do think further to Carl's question that most redundancy systems that you can get need code wrapped around them to actually behave properly. You know, like a clustered SQL server, when it goes into failover, when the master goes down and the, and the backup is kicking on, it takes a minute or so for it to actually recover. And all the connections to the database in that time are broken. So if you haven't written the code to go, oh, I've lost my connection to the database, reestablish it, and then oh, I better wait a minute or so to be able to do that, the re- reality for your app is just the database went away. Yeah, and so along those lines in Windows Azure, like SQL Database, for example, mm-hmm. um, gives you, you know, it's SQL Server as a service, if you want to think about it like that, in Windows Azure, and it gives you high availability out of the box. Like right. You don't think about it. You have your database running across three nodes all the time. Right. Uh, it's replicated all the time and you, one of those could go down and Microsoft handles that for you. But there is a case where you drop those connections to your point, Richard. Yeah. You will lose a connection and you will need to reestablish a right. connection. And if you just, if you haven't written the code to tolerate the fact that a connection go away, the default behavior is an error being barfed up the stack going no connection to the database. That's exactly it. Yeah. And so Microsoft has made that a little easy for us because, uh, they have built a block, uh, that's, it originated from the Windows Azure uh, customer advisory team, the CAT mm-hmm. team, um, but it's now part of patterns and practices in enterprise library right. called the transient fault handling block. Nice. And what that allows you to do is pick up 
and detect those transient faults that are the connections lost because I'm failing over to another server or, or whatever. Uh, and then you can build in a retry policy to say retry every so many seconds. And then after X number of retries, then fail hard to do some other, some other logic. You could have a back off, like exponential back off algorithm as well in that retry policy. Right. Like, you know, yeah, after five minutes, you could probably give up. Like <laughs> yeah. Something's clearly gone really wrong. The whole cluster's gone. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah you can't hang forever. But I, and I appreciate that these are the guys, this is a pattern of how you write code to deal with every time I speak to a database, there is a possibility that it'll go away, but it will be back. You know, how do you recover from that? So I, I'm glad that these blocks exist. We just have to remember to use them. Right. Yeah. And, and not everybody has this problem. So like, sure. we should be clear about that. But I think this is where we speak to what does Chaos Monkey really do for you? Yeah. Is it, is it, here's an opportunity to really test that failover if you haven't thought of it yourself. You know, I'm a little obsessed on the whole, you know, I've made a living building these redundant systems and, and I'm pretty good at checking that. I have literally yanked the power cord out of databases to make sure the failover really, really worked. There was test data. But, you know, to actually see that process and understand, did the code properly compensate? But so you didn't run through the production data center and, and do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, in, I have actually done full production failovers to redundant data centers. Sure. In production, which is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. But if you've never done it, you don't have it. Like that's, I think that's the toughest part for people to deal with is the idea of the, these backup strategies. aren't. You don't care about a backup strategy. You care about a restore strategy. And so you've, until you've actually exercised it, you're lying to yourself because there's way more things than you thought of the first time you try and do something like this. Yeah, we've stopped. You know, I don't want to say we've stopped, but we have certainly transitioned from talking about backup and disaster recovery mm -hmm. to really talking about business continuity. Constant operation. You need exactly. to do it all the time. And, I, and not that I want to digress on this, but you'll love this story. So I'm working with a customer who's exactly in that situation. they got a backup data center. They've never tested the failover for it. And they now they want to. You know why they wanted to? They had a fire at the backup data center, and it took the app down. Just think about that for a minute. That yeah. was the backup data center that went down. The piece of redundancy was supposed to make, keep you safe. That went down, and it took the app out. Well, wow. Yeah, we had some problems. Yeah, and you know we, we're talking at, at a at a pretty grand level of backup data centers, yes. but a lot of folks don't even test the redundancy in their own data centers. Yeah. right. How often do you flip the breaker to see if the generator kicks on, yep. right, and see if the UPSs keep it alive? So the UPSs, you know, yeah. batteries get old. Yeah, exactly. And I've had exactly that experience where the yeah power went out, generator started, but there's a two minute gap <laughs> while the generator gets warm and everything's off. Because yeah. the batteries are done. And I used to be a tech exec, and we had this exact problem. You know, massive generator outside, awesome, awesome, massive, uh, you know, UPSs. Yep. We lost power, and it's like, what? why did the servers go down? Hmm. And batteries were dead. Yeah. <laughs> right? Batteries weren't actually any yeah. good anymore. Nobody replaced them. They last three years, kids. Exactly. you got to get new ones. And they're not, you know, UPSs aren't cheap. You're swapping those batteries, and they're not fun to swap either. Right. And it's a lot of power. Yep. Like, I don't know if you've ever done that, but you've, you've never been electrocuted. Too. You've been electrocuted <laughs> by a bunch of lead-acid batteries. That'll wake you up. Uh, fortunately, I can say that I've not had that problem. So I have scars, man. I have many, <laughs> many scars. Yeah, I feel for you, man. So... So, you know, going back to that chaos monkey, your question of why, you know, what's the impact? What do we expect to learn? Right. And, you know, I think it is, to your point, it's that... 
those unexpected things that we maybe didn't test, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe something got slipped in and we didn't think about it. Um, and you know, we might test really, really well, but it's really getting that real production uh, or even your test environment, that real sense of here's what's going on and here's what happens if, uh, this server goes down and hopefully nothing, right? Right. That's the whole thing is I want Chaos Monkey to be running and nobody could tell. Exactly. That would be awesome. So so to that point, though, it's more than just a Chaos Monkey, right? It's, um, you know, Chaos Monkey is great. It's, you know, I, I run into companies all the time that have this situation where they think everything is running just fine, but they have no way to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. there's monitoring. They sense it. Exactly. <laughs> it's mostly a sense of fear. Yeah. So I did a, I did a session last week, uh, on, you know, diagnostics and monitoring for Mm -hmm. a group. And I pulled the audience of, you know, how do you know if things are going well? Like what's your monitoring strategy? The phone isn't ringing. Yep. So there, that was like the first one. Customers aren't calling, right? (laughs) It's like, okay, that's good. And then, then it went to, well, before lunch, I F5 on the website to make sure it responds. And if it's good, then I can go to lunch. <laughs> oh, man. Right. <laughs> so from some, the inside. Right. So some companies, that's, you know, that's the extent that's of their it. monitoring. Yeah. And so you really need to have good monitoring tools to know what's going on behind the scenes. Anytime that I, when I was running boxes, and I guess I still am, but, you know, before when they were on site, uh, if a, a server was running and running and running and it's been running for a long time and hasn't been rebooted and stuff, I just get that feeling like, you know, what, should I even turn this thing off? Right. Because <laughs> what happens if that disk doesn't come back? Right. You know, it's been running too well and, uh, you know, it's time to replace it. Just, yeah. you know, you get that smell. It's like. I think a lot, I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like this thing's running and it's so old. Like I'm not sure what you know. I don't know if I really want to reboot it. Yeah. If I turn it off, it won't. Turn, I'm back back on. I yeah. remember having a set of machines that were using original one gig SCSI drives, the full height three and a half style, and those drives were running so hot they were warping the chassis they were in. And we turned one of the servers off, and you when this, you heard the drive spin down, and as it spun down, you heard a little ping as the bearing seized. Wow. I was like, all right, all of these machines that are running these drives, they're done. You need to get stuff. Do not turn them off. Get stuff off of them. We need to replace <laughs> them right now. So if they shut off for any reason, and every one of those drives seized up the moment they were shut off. Yes. Garbage. I, done. I've been and in that exact situation. Was, <laughs> and then there was Goliath. Yeah. So one of the, so that's a great point. Cause one of the problems that you've exposed there is not just that we're not confident of the hardware, but now this application is so old. The people that built it are maybe long gone. Right. We're not even sure how to bring this thing up on another piece of hardware. Right. Uh, and so that's one of the things that Windows Azure has strived to resolve is. A cloud service is really, I think of it as two separate things. So there's, you know, the infrastructure and the abstraction in the data center that allows us uh, to scale out and do all the cool things that we mm-hmm. do in Windows Azure. Uh, but there's also this package that occurs uh, on the dev side of things where we package up everything we want to deploy to Windows Azure uh, in one one file, basically, with a configuration, configuration file uh, attached. Right. And we hand that off to Windows Azure. And that's what makes this kind of scaling process repeatable and automatic. So when a server goes down and it needs to come back up, it can do that. And yep, so it knows how to come back. 
Yeah, so there were some wrongs kind of righted there in Windows uh, with Windows Azure around that sort of, like, just think about it like a manifest mm-hmm. of here's everything we need to do. We need to run these things first. We need to deploy these bits here. Uh, all that sort of stuff in one one contained package that's repeatable every time. Right. And so in Windows today, you know, we have files scattered, scattered all over the OS and maybe some comms, com plus uh, objects registered somewhere. And we've mm-hmm. got, you know, registry keys and it's... Yeah. Yeah, good yeah. luck. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to tell your developers to stop spanking the monkey. Oh, jeez. Did you say that? That's not right. What? The chaos monkey. Uh, okay, is that where you're going to go? No, no, no. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. Yeah. Before I do that, though, I need to tell you that Telerik recently released DevCraft for Q2 2013. Well, not recently, but, you know, this is the latest stuff, guys. The 10 new controls and over 250 new features across all six of their UI control suites allow you to cover more scenarios out of the box. Tile list for Ajax, calendar, data storage, touch, and more for Windows 8, as well as offline cloud data synchronization for Windows Phone and cloud mobile backend as a service are just a few of the major new things. The newly introduced graph interactivity support in Telerik Reporting helps you create even more interactive reports. Just Codes helps you create even more interactive reports. Just Code's new integration with Just Decompile allows you to debug third-party libraries without having the source code available. Check it out at Telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, buddy, who won? The winner of today's DevCraft Complete Collection is Yosef A. Koza. Congratulations, Yosef. Golf clap for you, sir. Yes, and DevCraft Complete is everything Telerik does in one box. Uh, of course, just for being a member, uh, Joseph wins. Joseph, Joseph, sorry, uh, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Anyway, we also give away Franklin Brothers CD, Lifeboat to Nowhere. This is uh, great stuff. It's it's sort of like new, new old stuff, right? It's like new classic rock. Uh, if you like, uh, Billy Joel, Steely Dan, Beatles, the Eagles, if you're around in the eighties and the nineties, you'll like this stuff. And today's winner is Adam Schroeder. Congratulations, Adam. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .nerox.com, click on the big get free stuff button in the right hand corner. I answer a few questions and join the fan club. Just takes a minute. And uh, we have thousands of members. Every show, we give away stuff to members of the fan club. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. Last year, it was Rob Corbett who put together, a, who had Richard put together, actually, and spec out a machine for development, his dream machine for mobile uh, development and connect development. And uh, we like to ask our guest, Eric, if you had five grand to drop on toys, technology, whatever, what would you buy? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, Google Glass is certainly up there for me. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm all over that. Just, do you guys have one? No, no. I, I mean, I've had a chance to wear one, but you know, and it's gonna be interesting to see what the actual price is because the developer edition was fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah. Plus, you need an Android phone, and yeah. it should be a good one. I've tried the one I was playing with had a Nexus Four attached to it, which is pretty solid. Like you know, you're in a couple of grand there just to get that thing going. But it's in development mode right now. Like just seeing some of the software that's being built for it, it's really interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, and I'm not an Android guy by any means, uh, but you know, I've seen. So I, you know, I attend a lot of mobile groups in Chicago, and mm-hmm. so I go to the Google Developer Group, and you know, I saw Google Glass for the first time in action there, 
and was just like, wow, I see so many. When, when you see it, you just see so many awesome applications. Yep. Now, when you mean see it, did you actually wear it? And uh, I did it? not wear it. No, okay. I just watched like a, an awesome demo of okay. it. Uh, and there were a couple of them there. Could you see what the people wearing it saw? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So they plugged it into a, a projector and you could see it. Nice. And it, it was, it was so awesome that, you know, I'm offering them money, like twice what they paid for this thing. And I'll give you, I'll give you three grand right here, 3,500. And they think it's so awesome. They're not, they're not willing to take it. Wow. So I, uh, yeah, five grand may not be enough for, for Google Glass today. So what was the coolest thing? Uh, I, I just think there's a lot of real practical business apps that could be built with Google Glass. Really? Um, but one of the things that they were talking about and showing off, uh, was the idea of navigation. Uh, right. just, just GPS navigation in your car. Right. It's like a heads up display. So you're not looking down at a GPS device right. yeah. or something, your phone or whatever. It's like yeah, right yeah. there. You just look up. Right. And so getting that turn by turn navigation right there in your glasses is pretty cool. The most amazing thing having worn it is the microphone, the earphone, because it's a bone connotation phone. So it's not in your ear at all. And nobody can hear what you can hear. It just, it's in your skull. It's spooky actually. Yeah, that's I didn't I didn't see that piece of it in action, yeah. but uh, but yeah, sounds. Well, a, I mean, one of the challenges with Google Glass is you're wearing that thing on your head. Right? It's a little it's a little goofy it's looking, a little right? Goofy, it's a little creepy, and a little pretentious. I think, don't you? I mean, yeah. You know, if you're if you're standing there having a conversation with somebody who's got a Google Glass on, and then they start talking, are you sure they're talking to you? Right. Are you? <laughs> And Cyborg. more relevantly, is what they're saying actually coming out of their brains or just, just looking at the thing and it's a reading a script? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Joe, how you doing? Yeah, I remember back in December, we met at Joe's party. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> that's, there's a great application there, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think Google Glass is pretty cool. Uh, you know, I, generally I have tons of hardware, so I, mm-hmm. you know, I don't. It's a goodie. I think I would love to put together a five thousand dollar kit of a developer's kit for Google Glass. That'd yeah, be really interesting. Yeah, that would be cool. Awesome. So, how do I make my own Chaos Monkey for Azure? Yeah, so it's really simple. Uh, so let me walk through kind of the three steps that I think uh, exist to building a Chaos Monkey. All right. First, uh, you have to connect to your Azure subscription. Like somehow you have to connect to Azure. So you need to write some code to do that. Uh, There's management, the management service APIs are out there for Windows Azure. So uh, I can get a published settings file or I can use my certificates and authenticate with Windows Azure. And now I can do everything via an API. Uh, Then I have to kind of frame up the rules for my chaos. Now in Windows Azure, the subscription might not be the right level you would mm-hmm. want to emit chaos at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might want to drill down into specific uh, cloud services. So this might be the cloud service for this app, uh, for, for this app. So you might want to kind of constrain that. You might want to constrain time boundaries to say, you know, I only want this to run during business hours or what have you. But once you define those rules, uh, then it's really a matter of using that management API to just go out and reboot instances or re-image instances at random. So do I need... Like, I know Chaos Monkey's on GitHub. Do I need their bits? What does that give me? So Netflix, their Chaos Monkey on on uh, GitHub uh, would give you uh, some bits for AWS. Or Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Right. So and on the Windows. call it Simeon Army, which is awesome. Yeah. So so Simeon <laughs> Army is like the brand of all the Chaos Monkeys, if you will. It's like yes. the, the umbrella. So Chaos Monkey is one of those that reboots instances. Mark Miller was right. The monkeys are taking <laughs> over. Uh, the... 
there are a lot of other sort of automation monkeys in that Simeon army. So there's like a latency monkey. There's like a janitor monkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you have the scale uh, of Netflix and not everybody does, when you do and you have tens of thousands of instances running, um, you may have some that you forget about. Right. <laughs> and you're paying for those now. Yes. It and costs so, money. So janitor monkey, its whole idea is just to go clean that stuff up. It finds the orphan stuff and cleans it up. Right. Uh, so there's all sorts of stuff in that Simeon army, but that's all in GitHub. So if you're using AWS, definitely check that out. On the Windows Azure side, if you need a jump start, um, Steve Marks uh, built a a very small, lightweight version that's just a, a command line utility. Uh, and it's on GitHub at github.com slash smarks slash W-A-Z monkey. Uh, and so that will give you kind of the core of connecting to your Windows Azure subscription, rebooting instances, You'll have to make some, it's not been updated lately, so you'll have to download it and make some updates. Sure. Uh, and, but, and but send it's, a few pull requests while you're <laughs> at it, make it better. Cool. So it really just, like you said, comes down to once you have your rules, your, your personal business rules for when this thing is going to happen and what level it's going to happen at. It's just a matter of flipping those bits. How, how many and how often? I mean, what's the, this is the gray area where you, you know, you what do you start out just doing one a day and seeing if your code can handle it and yeah i mean i think it's up to you so right you know right now if you download the the bits from github from uh steve marks then what you're going to have is command line utility and so you could just run it on demand but you may choose to run it all the time maybe mm-hmm. do it once an hour or something like that and maybe you know those are your business rules how many instances should i recycle right uh, and you may want to just run that as a service all the time. The first time you run it, should you warn your engineers, be on the lookout for some <laughs> chaos? Well, so I would, I would strongly encourage not to run it in production. Uh, yeah, the first time, yeah. certainly. <laughs> like it's, maybe ever, you know, uh, that's a pretty, uh, ballsy sort of thing to do, but sure. yeah. Hey man, I thought the whole idea of the chaos monkey was to run it in production. Uh, you so that's what Netflix does, right? Um, and I, I gotta think one of the problems that Netflix has. I mean, you're talking about an app that at certain times of the day is like a third of all the internet traffic. How do you benchmark that? How do you load test that? Yeah. They don't have a choice. It's not like they can run anything of the same scale again, right? So you know, it, it makes sense to me that the. You know, you get to a certain place where there is only production. Yeah, you're not going to have a uh, a test environment that's that's on the same level as production, yeah. right? And so there's stuff going to happen in production that doesn't happen anywhere else. I mean, and I've run into that nothing the size of Netflix, but where you you have problems occurring in production that you simply re- can't recreate in the lab. Yep. And and you know, I've gotten to points with lo- some load tests where I'm just we we're not as weird as people. People do stuff to websites your load test tools just can't think of. Yeah. You know? And that's, that's the other point. Uh, so I mentioned monitoring earlier. Uh, I think that's essential when you're mm-hmm. thinking about things like automated tooling, like a chaos monkey. Yes. But also you have to generate test load. If you're not running in a production, you need to generate some sort of test load. And so whether that's a load or functional tests that are automated, somehow you have to generate a load to see what did this do? Right. And try this- to make a load that looks like people. So I've, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent <laughs> on parsing IIS logs to create load test scenarios that look like people. And exactly. still, you know, I've never been able to create a load test tool that gets impatient with the app and starts clicking on buttons before the page finishes rendering <laughs> or opens five windows at once and hits refresh on all of them just to see what happens. Like, right. People are mean. Yeah. Now, could, how far could you go with this? I mean, Netflix just, you know, reboots VMs and things, but, you know, could, could you like, 
I don't know, turn off session state <laughs> or, uh, you know, deal with that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, anything you could script up or code up, you could do, right? So it's right. just, at the end of the day, it's just automated code running to wreak right. havoc in your data center. Yeah. Uh, so whatever you would want. Like I can, I can imagine being very evil with this. With this <laughs> right. So we're working on, you know, we do a lot of, we have a lot of IP that we use in consulting engagements, but we're mm-hmm. working on maybe productizing some of this, uh, chaos code that we use in, in, uh, uh, with customers in Windows Azure. And so there may be something coming that you could just download and, and purchase from us. But yeah, right now. You're not there yet. Yeah. Jason, I wouldn't, I would rather write it myself though. I mean, you know, unleashing somebody else's <laughs> chaos monkey <laughs> on my code. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, that's probably, that's, that is serious evil there. <laughs> Point, point taken. <laughs> but I think there's also a point you said, and, and have gone through this sort of process with people a few times. Is like, what is the point where it's acceptable to be down? Right. So there's sort of a, all right. There's a smoking hole in the ground where the office used to be. Is it okay if we're down? Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and that you know that's come up before in conversations back in my tech exec days of you know what is that you know we are a global company. And just because our headquarters might be down in Chicago. Well, and I think our- of, uh, and I hate to even bring this up because it's kind of gruesome, but Cantor Fitzgerald was the company on the top couple of floors of the um, World Trade Center. And, you know, most of their people died. And uh, much many of their executives were lost. And, like, the company lost enough that it disappeared. It just couldn't continue. So there's, it, is, it gets to be morbid discussion as you work on these sort of disaster recovering continuity problems. Like, what is the threshold where it's like, yeah, okay, we're down. Yep. You know, all of Amazon, AWS has disappeared. Is it okay that we're down? If it's not, then we're looking at spending money to run in a whole other set of servers. Like, it's just a question of the cost that, you know, what's reasonable. Yeah. But these kind of, the thing about it is like these kinds of tools from Netflix, the things that Netflix, uh, they're doing makes it such that, Amazon can lose a data center. Sure. And they're still up. Well, because that happened. Right. Right. That AWS had a massive outage. It was like a day and a half, and Netflix never went down. Right. And I don't think they've really ever explained why that was. Like, what yeah. is that? What are they doing that they were able to stay alive? You have to start, I mean, at that scale, interesting. you have to start thinking about load balancing DNS uh, yeah. across data centers. And they may have, uh, they may have redundant cloud exactly. stuff going on. They may have their own backup cloud stuff yep uh so you know there's multiple aws data centers and so they're they're load balancing across that sure who knows what else they may be doing that they're not disclosing publicly but yeah yeah. i mean there's a conversation to say once you get to a certain once you're a facebook or netflix and so forth you should be using cloud infrastructure but you may not have to buy it from somebody else if you actually may if you've got enough computing demand that you can buy those container loads of machines you may, and you're also going to be able to afford qualified staff to manage that stuff. And you have 24 seven tech support coverage. Like now you have to start talking about it. Is, are, is there a Netflix cloud out there somewhere? Yeah. And Zynga is the perfect like poster child for that. So Zynga started out with 80% of their load out in AWS. Right. And 20% in their own data center. Yeah. And then a couple of years ago, they just flipped that because they got to a point where they saw sustained leveled out demand for these games. Right. So it makes sense for us to just buy those own and put those them machines. exactly yeah. it's cheaper for us to do that but on this other 20 percent, where maybe it's a new game or it's right. just not level yet and we want to test that out in the cloud. Loading, right? exactly a new campaign comes up and you pick up 25 percent more market share you can't provision one of those containers that fast but 
which you can get it absorbed by the cloud. Exactly. And I think it's a really interesting mindset once you start working way down this path of what do we know is the base load and that makes sense for us to own and minimize cost on. And I do think you can run it cheaper than they can when you get to that scale. Maybe not by much, but you can. Right. And then the it's the bursty stuff where you actually want to pay for it by hour. Right. Yeah, and you know, and I I'm back and forth on that. I'm not really sure. I haven't seen the exact numbers, you know, and really yeah. thought about it in great detail of what's that tipping point, what's the scale that well, says it's cheaper. Well, you notice that the all the providers, Azure, AWS, everybody's cutting rates these days. Right. Price, rack space, all the rates are going down, and I find that really interesting. Yeah. It's a race to the bottom, really. Yep. Yeah, eventually it's going to be free cloud, right? Well, and so. I saw I saw a comment I can't remember where, but it was that Amazon has a revenue model, and they're they're a private company still, aren't they? Oh no, no, they're publicly traded, yeah. but but they have a revenue model where you know that that is in addition to their cloud stuff, so they can afford to lose money on the on the cloud. And Microsoft, to the some extent, is also in that position, but. Microsoft's been losing money on Azure. Yeah, and I don't know what that time. looks like exactly, but I know Azure's at a billion in revenue now, which is amazing for, you know... Kind a billion of, here, a billion there, sooner they have real money. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, you know, it's amazing coming late to the game yeah. and just popping up at a billion in revenue all of a sudden, and uh, their 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 growth is much greater than everyone else. Yeah, so you're getting to an interesting good. place. But I also, I, part of this, I don't think they're just racing the bottom, like discounting against each other. I think that as they learn more, and understand how to operate more efficiently, they're cutting their own costs. So, they, you know, just because the price is falling, you know, these may be economies of scale. And right. you get automated enough so that the number of people needed to run that infrastructure gets lower and lower and lower. Yep. And you've amortized the cost. The building's built, right? You might as well bring in as much revenue as you possibly can. Yeah. So, you and know, they've sunk, I don't know, something like $10 billion into building out that infrastructure. It's going to take a while to earn it back. But if you don't get people on board, you're never going to earn it back. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, the the data centers. Some of them are filling up. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, interesting. Yeah. So it's uh, there. <laughs> there's there's a lot of consumption in Azure right now. So so do you recommend this? I mean, it, we've had fun talking about this. I guess the question is, where's the case study that shows that I found out stuff about my network I didn't know because I was running a piece of software that did random things. Yeah, and I haven't seen a lot of that data sure. from Netflix, but but we see it all the time in our traditional line of business apps where uh, maybe it's not something you didn't know, but it became more apparent when uh, or obvious to everyone right. when it happened in production, right? So, yeah. you, you know, the developers always knew that if we lose this server over here for a period of time, everything goes down. Yeah, we're done. Right? But it takes the executives to know that before yeah. something actually happens. Yeah. Right. And so that's, you know, possibly a scenario where chaos monkey comes into play. It's, and that's a real, I think that's an interesting thought that this might be a way to overcome a cultural restriction. They'd never let you turn that server off as a test, but they'll let you run chaos monkey. Cause that's what the smart people do. And it'll turn it off. Right. <laughs> right. And that's how you find out. Yeah. You know, then, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've run into this situation working in this sort of DevOps kind of space where the problem is it becomes opinion, right? That when we're trying to figure, we're trying to resolve a problem, it's like, well, you did this. Well, as long as there's a piece of automation doing it, then it's nobody's fault. We always end up on the same side of the problem. What did Monkey do today? And you go and look at it, go, oh, it shut that off. Well, now you can't blame the programmer or the monkey. Well, 
do you play in the program? I guess that's a good question. You didn't actually know when it was going to shut it off. But I think I, I like the idea that we end up on the same side of it, looking at the log file saying, what happened and what can we do about it? Yeah, or yeah. the guy who made up the rules of when and what to do. Well, yeah. I also, you know, you see a hate on sometimes for the QA guys because they come up with test scenarios where you say, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody would ever do that. <laughs> and then Chaos Monkey was like, it's pretty reasonable that any of these services could be shot off at any time. Yeah, you know, especially in Azure, right? So Sure. Stuff uh, goes down. When, and not just, I mean, it goes down intentionally. Mm-hmm. So sometime those things have to get patched and updated, yep. right? And so Microsoft at, you know, reserves the right to do that. And so you have to have redundancy built in to avoid seeing downtime right and so if you don't you want to know that as early as possible mm-hmm. so you can deal with that and maybe you know again maybe it's not something that you you're looking for uh you know the production level of service yeah maybe you just don't want a nasty air to display yes when you lose a, a web service that you're app dependent on or even just tailoring the right um quality of service agreement to say sometimes you'll be down for a minute Yep. You know, because that's how long it takes to recover. Exactly. And that's okay. Like, that's what happens. And if you can't, you know, how many times I've had these these uh, statements of service, and it's like, this is not actually achievable. This is written by a salesperson. Yep. He does not understand what is physically possible. We will violate this. Why? Because the laws of physics. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's just no way. Yes. All response times will be under 20 milliseconds. Well, as long as we don't actually involve a network, that'll be easy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there are applications that need that kind of service, right? Yeah. So you got to... You gotta... Yeah, and so then you start talking about what that actually, you know, is that achievable? How, how do we cost that? You know, right. you, you know, you want you want your 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 Ford pickup cost and your Lamborghini Countach of you know performance. <laughs> it's like let's figure that out, right? So that's the cloud, right? Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's that is that. So back to your your question of you know, is there really is this practical? I think right. yes, uh, it is very practical. You know, especially as you're moving to the cloud, you really want to understand what an outage in this downstream system is going mm-hmm. to cause to your application. Sure. Is it practical to run it in production? Um, maybe if you are the Netflix scale, so there's yeah. not a lot of those kinds of companies. Yeah. There are some, but not a lot. But definitely I would encourage folks to do this kind of thing, whether it's a chaos monkey or whether it's manual, uh, just going out and rebooting the server in your test environment. Yeah, I think the most powerful thing is have this conversation. Right. You know, are we prepared to reboot any of these servers during this test to see if it survives? Well, yeah, let's try that. You've got to architect for failure. Yeah. Even yep. if you didn't write this, even if you don't run the software itself, just somebody going in there poking holes and things is, is at least something. But yeah, I'm excited to have that conversation with, with folks and yeah. see how they react and just start thinking about what that looks like. Just pop the USB key into the network and <laughs> let the chaos monkey run. <laughs> <laughs> so Eric, what are you, uh, what are you working on next? What's next for you? Uh, I'm going to Visual Studio Live next week. Uh, right. So by the time this airs, it'll be not next week, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that's where I'm headed next to talk about more Azure okay. uh, and working on some fun Azure projects. That's all I do really is work on that's Azure great. projects. So That's great. Yeah. Well, I, I too am uh, learning a lot about all of the different aspects of Azure and uh, coding them up and, and just am constantly amazed at how much thought they've put into how developers interface with Azure. It's just yeah. great. Thanks, thanks, Scott. Right. <laughs> Yep, it's getting better. It's getting better. It's awesome. All right, Eric. Well, thanks very much for spending an hour with us. Thank you so much. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Unless the Chaos Monkey gets us first. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online 
Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter bands by the FCC.